We have been on this journey together for um, the last 10 weeks, and um, I've really enjoyed. Originally, I thought I was going to try to double down on a couple of the commandments and shorten it a bit, but I, once I got into it, each command actually, or 10 words, I felt like deserved a sermon in its own. And as we've learned together, um, you know, the, you take what is written in the Old Testament, the 10 commandments or the 10 words. And Jesus has something very profound to say, something about every one of them. And I just felt like it, um, as it turned out, we did decide to do 10. So we're on our last one today. And um, I, I just thought it was kind of interesting um, that uh, this, I've been gathering t-shirts as we go because people have given me t-shirts as, as I've done this uh, sermon series. So uh, my friend Gary here sitting on the front, he gave me this one. It's called, they're, they're the commandments, not the 10 suggestions. I thought that was pretty good. And then I received another one and it goes something like this. This was um, the Ten Commandments are not multiple choice. I thought that was also pretty good. So I've been collecting, uh, I've been collecting t-shirts this last, um, the last few weeks. And so we're on number uh, 10 uh, tonight or today. And so, um, so here's how we finish up. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house or you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so, um, and the, the word there, covet, really has everything to do with the definition is to yearn to possess or have something. And in this context, to yearn to have something that does not belong to you. So, you know, I always try to keep things uh, current. And um, I know, you know, we just, as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, you know, we were in the middle of the Olympics. And, you know, of course, the Olympics are, are huge. They're global. They're, they're, they're epic. Well, I just want you to know, we have moved on to something even bigger than the Olympics. Here, here's the picture. It's called Little League Baseball. And so it's really big, all right? So um, I just started watching this last week. They're, the kids are playing. Actually, I don't think they got the chance to play last year because of COVID. But the, uh, the 12, 11, 12-year-olds are actually uh, playing Little League Baseball. They're, the All-Stars are playing. And so there's 16, kids, 16 teams from the United States who have stamped their ticket to be beginning next week. Um, they're going to be playing um, and getting ready to play for the World Series. And so, you know, what's interesting about that is it brought back a lot of memories because I love coaching in Little League Baseball. When I was, um, you know, when I lived in Boynton Beach, I was a part of the West Boynton Beach Little League, and I coached for almost 10 years. I coached all my sons at some point or another. Matter of fact, at one point, I think I was coaching three Little League teams at the same time simultaneously. Tried to do that. I did it, but I did it. And um, it was, it's really great. And um, I had the honor to actually uh, be the all-star coach a few times. And a couple of times we had a chance to win the district championship. And then we moved on to the next level and we got shellacked, but that was okay. And, um, and but I do remember one year, um, there was one team from West Boynton Beach and um, the 11, 12 year olds, and they were really good. And, and they were so good. There was, there was talk that they really thought that this particular team would make it all the way to the World Series. And so they had three kids on that team that actually went on and um, played Division One baseball. They got to the next level. I think they won, and then they got to the next level, and then they made a few errors in one game, and that knocked them out. So it was kind of unfortunate. So, um, so as I mentioned, so three of them went on to play Division One baseball at like North Carolina, NC State, um, and also at Penn State. But one on one of them, well, I always try to keep things current. Here, let me just show you a video. Did you hear what he said? He said there's only one, well, there's only a handful of people on the whole planet that could have scored on that particular play, and that kid's name is Trey Turner. And that's the kid 
that I watched watch play Little League Baseball. Actually, the Buckies are sitting, he's an NC State guy, and so he actually went to NC State. And you know what's amazing about, and the reason why I tell you that story, by the way, here's an interesting thing. I'm one of the few people that watched that kid play Little League All-Stars as an 11, 12-year-old, but i also one of the few people, that actually, well, this last week, I, a couple of weeks ago, I watched him play in a Major League All-Star game, which is pretty impressive. I mean, and, and so the reason why I share that story with you today, once again, I always try to keep things current, is because I remember... Um, watching that kid and sitting in the stands, because my kids were all watching with me and playing at the same time. And I remember in my heart thinking, and this is a true story, coveting Trey Turner's skills, and I wanted my kids to be that good. And, and so, you know, that's a true story, because I'm thinking, man, he had everything. He could hit, he could run, he could, he could, um, he could throw, he had the unbelievable... F- uh, th- and you know what? He's just a little bitty guy. He, there's not much to that guy. And he was little, I mean, he was, when he was 11, 12, he's a scrawny little kid. You look at him and think, about, what, what's that about? He had no big muscles. He was in hitting home runs. He was just good. And I remember watching this kid play um, and just had this amazing skill set. And I remember coveting all those skills, and I wanted my kids to be just as good as that kid. And God says, you shouldn't be doing that, Harold. It's the 10th command. You know what? Here's an inter- also an interesting thing. You know, usually when we think about covenant, you could be like covenant some kind of possession. In this case, it had nothing to do with possessions. By the way, the kid's making $13 million, which is pretty good, right? <laughs> so I'm not coveting the $13 million, his $13 million contract. No, it goes back 15 years ago when he was a little boy, and I wanted all those skills to be in my little boys. Covenant. You got to be careful of that. I was reading the story this last week, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, it's a story about John and Ann Beter. Uh, chances are you probably haven't heard of him. Uh, John uh, died in 2018. He was 107. His wife, Ann, died seven months later. She was 103. Um, and get this. This is the reason why I'm telling you the story. They had been married 86 years. Matter of fact, I think we've got a picture of them. There they are. Aren't they just beautiful? Yeah, they just passed away a couple of years ago. There was their wedding photo. 86 years. Now, can you imagine? I mean, that's unbelievable. I have done some weddings that I don't think they lasted 86 days. As a matter of fact, I did one. I'm not sure it lasted 86 hours. And that's a true story. I did a cruise ship wedding one time, and I'm not even sure it made it over the weekend, right? Less than 72 hours, right? True story. I'm not making that up either. And they interviewed uh, John and Ann, and they asked them this question, which I think is a great question. Like, how did you guys do it? I mean, I think they were like the uh, oldest couple in, um, in America that had been married that long, 86 years. And so they, here's the question, when they asked that question, how'd you do it? And this is what John said. He says, live within your means and be content. And I think, man, that's a great, isn't that a great quote? And this is a coming from a guy who's 107 years old, been married to his wife for 86 years. And he said the secret of success was just living beneath, living within their means and just being content with life. And so I think that's very powerful about the word content. Because a lot of times covenant has to do with being content, right? So we are covenant something you don't have. So therefore, you know, I'm not content with it. Now listen, contentment can be a good thing. It'd be a bad thing. It could be a blessing. It could be a curse. Like you can not, well, not the idea of not being content. I mean, you can be a you can be content being a couch potato, right? 
You can be content not reading your Bible. You can be content not going to church. You can be content not giving or sharing or, you know, any of those things. You can be content. So an interesting way of thinking about content. So contentment can be a positive thing, but also it can be not such a positive thing. Contentment. Coveting. I found this out this last week. I, I, I never had thought about this, but when I did my research, uh, did you realize that um, Moses and King Tut lived um, probably within the same era, within 70 years? Matter of fact, you know, when they found King Tut's, um, where, where he was final resting place, you know, he was only like 19 when he died. But yeah, here's a picture of King Tut's um, tomb. Man, that looks like a really high-end garage sale, doesn't it? Isn't it? I mean, they actually found a couple of Ferraris in there and... Um, Actually, not Ferraris. They found six chariots, lots of gold. They had um, found all this beautiful fine wine and just unbelievable, all the stuff that they had packed in there with King Tut and his tomb. Which reminds me, because, you know, it goes back 3,500 years ago, within 70 years or so, give or take, 1330 B.C. versus Moses, 1400 B.C., is that even the children of Israel and even the people of Egypt had all these possessions and many of them were lusting after their other possessions. It's the reason why you had to look at, think and look at why did God put this one in here? Because evidently the children of Israel had an issue with coveting other people's stuff. I think it's interesting because you think about John Better and that, that quote that he gave us. He says, you know, live within your means. In other words, just being content with what you have and don't stretch yourself too soon. And then just being content with your spouse because guess what? Guess what? The grass isn't always greener on the other side. So I thought it was interesting as you look at this, this, these, these, these 10 commandments are almost like they are almost like, like bookends. And you do got the first one that is thou shall not have any other gods before me because God says, I want you to be, I want to be number one. He is Yahweh, which means in, the, in your Bible, in, your, in all capital letters, remember L-O-R-D means Yahweh. He says, author and sustainer, the source of all life. And there can't, you can't create an image. You can't do anything that's going to be beyond me. So don't even try it. So you have that one. And then you have this, this idea of coveting things that really don't belong to us. And what's interesting, if you look at all the other ones and you pack them all together, coveting really infringes, actually alludes to all the other nine previous ones as you look at the first one and the last one. And they are ultimately, they're like bookends. So in my research this last week, I thought this is really interesting because see, we have the, the 10th commandment and we find in Exodus 20, the 17th chapter. But I don't know if you realize it, but um, there is the second version of the 10th commandment and it's actually in the book of Deuteronomy. So the first one, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and may on so forth. And then you have in the book of Deuteronomy, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire of your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now what's very interesting, if you go back and look at the words there, the word covet, um, the word covet um, in the first translation in the, in the Ten Commandments version um, has everything to do with the word Hebrew word shemad, which has to do with the word lusting after or strong desire. And the second commandment we find in, in the word that the, the Hebrew writer wrote in Deuteronomy, he does, it's the same word, but it's a different derivative of the word. And that's the word avah, A-V-A-H. And that word has everything to do with craving something that doesn't belong to you. 
So when you look at all the whole package here, it's, you have one, you have the same word, but it has a different, a little bit different meaning. I have this, this lusting, this strong desire, but also craving something that really doesn't quite belong to you. Coveting. Uh, true story, when I was about 20, 21, my, one of my best friends, her name is Lauren, um, I, I love Lauren, she's just been a fantastic friend to me um, for, since 1981, and uh, matter of fact, when I had my accident, uh, Lauren came and uh, stayed for about two or three days um, to help Donna, which was, just meant a lot to me. You know, friends are friends forever if the Lord is Lord of them. And so, um, but Lauren's um, family was pretty well off. I met her at um, Florida Southern College and we'd just been best friends for years and years. And, and so um, uh, I remember her coming to school one, one year and um, she had a brand new Corvette. You talking about a 20 year old lusting after a Corvette, oh man. <laughs> and one day she flipped me the keys and says, Harold, you drive. And I said, don't mind if I do, right? <laughs> Man, was I coveting that Corvette as a 20-year-old. Man, I was cruising around the T-tops blowing to off my long blonde hair blowing in the breeze, right? I was somebody. But do you see what happens in life? It doesn't matter if you're a kid at 20, 20, 21, coveting after a Corvette or you're in your mid to late 40s and you're coveting after this other kid's skills that you wish your kids were just as good as your neighbor's kid at baseball. Coveting. So my, um, I had a conversation with my, my daughter a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, my, my precious little granddaughter, Marley Ray. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Marley. There she is. Isn't she adorable? Uh, that was the first day she went to brand new preschool of this last week, a couple of weeks ago. Her daughter's got her posing, her mother's got her posing like this. And so she was all excited, a little backpack and her brand new little academy shirt. And she's all dolled up, excited with a bow in her hair. It, so the week before that, her... Um, her little cousin Penny came, and um, and they Penny stayed with her. Penny's six, and Marley's three. And so uh, I said, Olivia, so how are things going with you? You know, you got two this week. And she says, first thing I really appreciate. It. She said, Dad, I don't know how you and Mom did it. All five of us running around. I said, Oh, there you go, right? So she says, I'm having a hard time just doing two. I said, Yeah, I can understand that. Good luck on that. And then, and then she said, and then I said, Well, how how else things are going this week? She says, Well, Marley's having a little difficult time sharing, and she's fixated on the word mine. Mine. So once again, we look at life, isn't it? Doesn't matter if you're, you know, you're 20 or 21, you want to make it mine, something doesn't belong to you. Or you're in your mid-40s and you have, see this kid that's got this unbelievable skill set in playing baseball, you want to make it mine. Or you're three. What's interesting about the word mine, so the word mine, you, can't, you cannot have it because it's mine, right, as a kid, or you have it and I want to make it mine. Now, where have we heard that before? Well, I just preached on this a couple weeks ago. Think about the whole story, David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, right? David sees Bathsheba, he begins to crave her, lusting after her. So what is he doing? He's coveting something that doesn't belong to him. 
Bathsheba belonged to Uriah, and Uriah belonged to Bathsheba. But he had to have it. He had to have her, right? I told you a story last week about that whole story about Ahab and Jezebel and, um, and um, J- um, Jaboth who had this vineyard. And so Ahab really wanted his vineyard. He's the king. And so Jezebel says, really? Are you really the king? I mean, you're being a loser. Get up. Get out of bed. I'm going to fix this problem. And she did. She made sure that um, he was really, um, Jaboth was going to be killed because they told lies about him. And then they took what really didn't belong to them, right? We see it over and over again. Oh, here's another one. Um, the, the whole story about Adam and Eve. Think about this one, all right? And I'm going to teach you something new. And I'm really excited about this because I never thought about this until this last week as I was reading something. I love learning something new about the Bible. And chances are you're going to learn something new in the next three minutes you didn't know about the Bible, all right? So, um, so here's the interesting thing. Adam and Eve are created. God puts them in the garden and says, you can have anything you want. They had trees everywhere. They had all the fruit they could ever imagine. They had everything they could ever conceive. Everything is perfect in paradise. And God says, listen, the one thing that you cannot have is you can't have the tree in the middle of the garden. You cannot eat the fruit. Matter of fact, don't even go there. Don't even go near it. Don't even touch it. And so you know what God does? He puts, can you put that sign up? He puts caution, do not touch on that sign, right? Now here's the interesting thing. All right, so let me just once again, let's just make this relevant for our everyday lives. And I, I'm guilty of this. Here's the true story. Have you ever gone to one of those like antique sh- uh, stores, maybe at Mount Dora or wherever, and... Um, and you're walking through and you see the like the little crystal ballerina thing and the crystal ballerina has a little sign underneath and it says, do not touch. <laughs> and do you know what happens when you see do not touch and makes you want to touch it that much more? True story, right? So I've never even thought about touching the crystal little ballerina thing until they put the sign in front of it. And then I'm thinking, I've got to touch that, right? I, I want to hold it. I, I'm not, I'm not, and I love the other part of that is you've seen the signs, if you break it, you own it, right? You've also seen that sign, right? And, and so I just want, I have this, this feeling, so had they not put the sign there, then I wouldn't have had any thought even thinking about touching it or not. But once you put the sign there. So here's the interesting thing. So God puts the do not sign, do not touch sign on, on the tree in the middle of the garden. And it made them want it all that much more. Matter of fact, here's the I call this the sin before the sin. Now, I was always taught the original sin is Adam and Eve going and taking the fruit. Uh, Eve takes it first, and then she offers it to Adam. And once again, you got the serpent, once the whisper of the serpent, uh, trying to rationalize everything. Hey, Eve, don't worry about it. We're good. God will never know. He doesn't really care. Go ahead. Do it anyway, right? Okay, you know that part of the story. But here's the interesting thing. I never had thought about this. So the original, so the, we always thought the original sin is she went and pulled the tr- fruit off the tree and then she ate it and then she offered it. To, no, no, no. Here's the interesting thing. The original sin is not her, the action of it. The original sin is the thought that she wanted something that did not belong to her in the first place. The first original sin is coveting. 
the first original sin is that she had this desire in her. I mean, they had all the fruit they can ever imagine. They had everything they can imagine. Everything was perfect, but the one thing they couldn't have, she had to have, right? Wow. And God said, don't even go there. True story. So I have with my, my wife, um, about nine or 10 years ago, we got this dog. His name is Charlie. Matter of fact, I got a picture of Charlie. Here's Charlie. Okay, so there's Charlie, right? Donna loves him. She loves her dog. Okay. She rocks the dog to sleep every night. She puts her on it. It's just amazing. We do, and she's been doing this since she's a puppy. Loves this dog. Now, here's the interesting thing about Charlie. When it comes to other dogs, he is clueless. Because what happens is, is that the other day, true story, he was out on the leash, and when he saw this other dog go by, he just becomes like a dog possessed. And so he has to ultimately bark at all the other dogs. He wants to pick a fight at the other dogs. So he's on this leash, and he was so amped up about seeing this other dog go by, he literally broke the chain leash and went right for this other dog. Now, here's the interesting thing. Charlie is about this big and about that long. The dog that he decided to pick a fight with was a Doberman Pinscher. <laughs> and I'm thinking, dude, what are you doing? I had to go get him. The Doberman was actually much more well-mannered than Charlie. And then I got him. And I said, well, and I yelled at him. I said, what are you doing? He says, ooh, 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 right? And so we had to come to Jesus talk, and I kept saying, Charlie, you cannot do this. He's been doing this for 10 years, right? So what happens is when I take Charlie on a walk every night, and there's another dog over here, because it's inevitable in our neighborhood, you're going to see three or four other dogs. He's over here, and I say to Charlie, don't even think about it. <laughs> and so God says to Adam and Eve, don't even think about it. Don't even go there. But they went there. See how coveting can just kind of ratchet up in your life? And it can just, it's subtle. It just kind of weaves its way, that 10th commandment. It just, you think, oh, you know, most people don't even think, oh, yeah, I, I, need, I forgot that. Yeah, that one's in there. It is. Um, but it's powerful, the coveting thing. It is. Now, what's also interesting, let me teach you for a second. So, um, we have this word ava, which has to do with craving. We had the word shemad, which has to do with lusting, the strong desire, which is we find in the in the Exodus version. But we also have, because see, I don't know if you realize this, but the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Okay, so when you come to this word covening, we find a little different version of the word because you know Hebrew is very different from Greek. And so what's very powerful for the word for covening um, has a little different variation. And it's really, the word is called planionexia, which planion is the word more and exo is the second derivative of the word is to have. Oh, there you go. To have more. To covet has everything to do with having more. Okay, so let's just look at what Jesus talks about, the idea of coveting and having more. So this is what Jesus has to say, okay? Here's this Jesus on this topic. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of abundance of possessions. Jesus. 
So the idea of having more is associated with the word greed. I got to have more. Jesus says, oh, be careful of that. Now, once again, let's just try to keep everything kind of current. So um, let's just think about this in, in life. You know, um, in our, we're a very consumer-driven you know, uh, planet and uh, <coughs> country. And so um, I don't know but you all, but does anybody have a cell phone with them by, by chance? Anybody have a cell phone? Okay, okay. So, I mean, we all have cell phones. Now, what's interesting about um, cell phones is um, I, uh, Apple and Galaxy do a phenomenal job of, of really marketing cell phones. So what's interesting is I think that um, iPhone's up to like 13, I think iPhone 13. And, you know, and so we're, they do a great job of marking the idea that you need it. They, they do a great job of thinking, you know, it's bigger and better and it's faster and flashier. And listen, I looked this up last week. If you want to get an iPhone uh, 13, hey, listen, it's really good. But for $2,000, they even throw in a really good camera inside it, right? For 2000 bucks. And so the idea of, once again, in our world today, the idea of, you know, I've got a, well, I got iPhone 10, but now I really want an iPhone 13, right? I, I, this is a really powerful quote. And I was watching 60 Minutes when I, this is actually two or three years ago, and it was such a powerful quote. I literally went, after I heard it, I went to my kitchen and I wrote it down because I didn't want to lose it. And I actually kept it. I didn't know if I was going to use it today, but two or three years ago, I actually kept it on a piece of paper and I put it on my desk, off by my phone. And I pulled it out this last week and I thought this would fit perfectly. So this came from Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple. Ready? This is Apple's philosophy. Apple can provide you something that you didn't know you needed, and once you got it, you can't imagine your life without it. Now think about that. And then I started thinking, okay, okay, okay. So I wonder what, um, I, I started thinking about God's, so that's Apple's philosophy. Let's think about God's theology. Jesus Christ can provide you something that you didn't know you needed, and once you got it, you can't imagine your life without it. Can I be meant on that? There's a big difference between Apple's philosophy of trying to sell you an iPhone 13 that's going to set you back $2,000, and then what God is offering us through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, it's interesting that Jesus had this particular take. When he talks about, you know, the, go back to the original meaning of the covenant in the New Testament about greed, and he has this spin on it. And he told a parable once upon a time in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the parable of the sower or the seed. Some of it, some of it call, know it as the parable of the sower, or some people know it as this parable of the soil, and some people know it as the parable of the seed. It can be called any of that. But what's interesting is that, you know, you know the story. So the, uh, Jesus says the, par- the story. Uh, there's a guy and the farmer, he's throwing a seed, and some of the seed fall on hard pan soil and the beaten down path. Some of them fall on the shallow soil. Some of them fall on the thorns. Some of them fall on good soil. They build, I mean, they're, they're like, they, they are like a hundredfold. It's amazing how the growth. But what's interesting, if you go back and look at the detail and when Jesus spins that story, when he talks about the idea of the seeds falling on thorny soil, this is what he said. The seed fallen among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. 
that chokes out the word, make it unfruitful. Matthew 13, 20. Jesus said this, you know, it's interesting because I, I think about the word craving, go back to the original meaning, craving, lusting, desiring, gotta have it, right? And in this context, when Jesus spends his story, craving leads to choking. The weeds choke out the word, restricting. And what Jesus, and his takes this and he connects it with desiring more wealth, more power, more possessions, more things. You know what's interesting? Um, uh, my mother and my sister are here today. And so when my grandfather, Dr. G.R. Tomlin died, um, the one thing I inherited from my grandfather um, uh, was his journal. And um, it, he, he actually wrote this. This is actually, this journal is about 100 years old because I went back and looked at the earliest entries and it goes back to early 1920s. And so um, he would write down, he was prolific in writing and meticulous about keeping notes on everything that he did in his ministry. Matter of fact, my grandfather was a minister. Uh, he continued until his 80s. He continued to preach. And um, he died about, he was about 88 when he finally died. And so what I found when I, I really enjoyed looking back, because I love history. And, and so in the midst of... Um, he would write down his sermons and which sermons he preached on which day and the text he would preach. But he also documented all his tithes and offerings. So whenever, you know, back, this is small little churches in Kentucky. So they would get, I don't know, maybe they would get $36 in the collection plate, right? So he would write that down in his little journal about what they received on that particular Sunday. And he journaled that. But to me, one of the most important and powerful things, because my grandfather lived in the, during the depression, Right. I mean, they didn't have anything. Um, and so he lived his life like that. He saved. And, um, and, and I think it's very powerful because my grandfather was a great student of John Wesley. He loved John Wesley. He loved his uh, preaching. He uh, studied his sermons. And he was a gifted, my grandfather was a gifted, gifted preacher. And um, I think my grandfather lived into that mantra of John Wesley about um, the idea of making all you can and um, saving all you can and giving all you can. That was Wesley's mantra about money. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And my grandfather really lived his life like that. But to me, one of the most important things that I found in this journal, and it really, to me, is powerful. It was about tithing. So like one year, um, I'm, like he got a funeral, and I, he had funerals for his whole year, a uh, month of August, and I think he got like $23. So it was an honorarium, 23 bucks. So next to the 23, what, when he received that, off to the side, he tied $2.30. Um, for Christmas, he got a, evidently people in the church, they gave him a Christmas bonus for $21. This is in 1927. So that'd been a lot of money. So he tied $2.10. That's how he lived his life. Quite simple. Jesus says, hey, listen, you've got to be careful with this whole thing about, you know, wealth. It can continue, coveting. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you realize, but do you realize the average credit card debt in America is 80, about $8,500? I don't know if you realize this, that it's interesting that the car loans over the last few decades have stretched out the loans from, going from 36 months to 69 months. I don't know if you realize this, but do you realize that um, the, the abundance of building more and more uh, uh, storage shelters is up fivefold? Just a thought. 
Everybody has their thing, right? Everybody has their thing about covening, wanting more. Jesus says, be careful. Let me show you a picture of my thing. You know, I love to fish. Here's my thing. That's my thing. I mean, I love Amazon, right? Don't we all love Amazon? I love Bass Pro. I, I get stuff in there. Bass Pro loves me. They keep, every time I open up my phone, there's a Bass Pro, right? They, they know my number. You know, they just continue to pop things up, right? Don't they do a phenomenal job of marketing all that? And Jesus gives us this word of caution, doesn't he? About coveting. But coveting for him is this insatiable desire for more. It's not enough. Yeah. So I, I close um, today with this little story. I love the story. I found it this last week. Um, uh, it's, it's a story by a guy, a guy named Paul Steen. I don't know Paul. I'm, uh, but he wrote this. Um, he's talking about when he was a sixth grader. So he's later. In, you know, I don't know how old Paul is. Maybe he's 60, 78. I don't know. He said he was talking about when he was in sixth grade. He says they went to Corona Elementary School. And he says, our school had a cafeteria, but my mom, at the time, we couldn't afford to have for me to buy lunch at school. So I brought my lunch from home every day. Every day, I carried the same meal in my brown paper bag. And he said, this is what was in my brown paper bag. And you all can relate to this. I I had a brown paper bag as well when I was a kid growing up. He said that his mother would put in a little canister of um, some hot soup. And then she would put in a little bag of some potato chips. And then the last thing he would get in his lunch, he would get a stinking bologna sandwich. (laughs) And he said, I ate a bologna sandwich Every day. He said, Randy Skull, uh, Randy Shaw sat on my right. He never bought a lunch box to school. At noon each day, he got to go to school. We got to go to the cafeteria each and eat the, he got to eat the best food a little boy can imagine. I, and I never got to eat at a restaurant or a cafeteria. Um, but Randy ate there every day. Each lunch period, I looked at his meal. I watched in agony as Randy opened his mouth wide open, spooned in the fresh, hot food. I I listened to him smack each bite while I forced a bologna sandwich down my throat. (laughs) You know, he said, Paul said that I would never have known about covenanting the law, but not, and had, had not said, you shall not covenant. And then he says, you know, I, I memorized the Ten Commandments in grade school. I could say that the Ten the Commandment from memorization. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or ox or donkey or anything or anything that belongs to your neighbor. He says, with my head, I learn not to covet. But with my heart, I learn how to covet. I know that cafeteers weren't mentioned in the off-limit list in the Tenth Commandment. I didn't covet my neighbor's house, wife, servant, ox, or donkey. But that last little phrase did me in, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Yep, that even includes cafeteria food. (laughs) So the reason why I share this with you today, okay, is, well, this sermon has come full circle. Um, it's not about, you know, the, well, the Ten Commandments are not, not the Ten Suggestions. And then, of course, the Ten Commandments are, well, they're not 
intended to be multiple choice and the Ten Commandments are not a bunch of baloney. <laughs> they are given to us by Almighty God in order to sustain our life, to stabilize our life. Because Almighty God, Yahweh, Elohim, L-O-R-D, we started with the first one, is the source of life. And we worship him and his son. Amen.